That's some more of the word of prayer. Let's dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. And Lord, I look at this text speaking so much about faith and faithfulness. And Lord, may we go beyond having faith in our minds and in our words, but Lord, faith in our actions. As we see the example tonight in Ezra and all those that followed him 900 miles back to Jerusalem. And so Lord, just give us ears to hear, minister to every heart. We thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So quickly, Ezra, as we know, the last Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are going to be the last three historical books in the Old Testament. And then all the prophets that are after them are prophets during this time between Ezra, Nehemiah, and we know also Esther. Now, Ezra is the one who God is sending back. And first we saw that the first six chapters were when uh, a man by the name of Zerubbabel brought 50,000 people back. So they'd been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And finally, there came a time when the king gave his blessing for them to go back and to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And they went back and they built. They started to build the temple. Uh, they, all they really had was the foundation. They started to build. And when they went back, they found the place in rubble. So there were no doubt, at least, there could have been a million or more Jews in Babylon after 70 years. And most of them had never been to Jerusalem. So the ones that went back, many of them, we saw in the text that the young men were excited and the old men wept. And the old men wept because they remembered when the temple was in its, all of its glory. They remember when Jerusalem was in all of its glory and they come back to a place of rubble. And after only a short amount of time, they were commanded by the king because uh, the people that lived in the outside areas that, hey, they're going to rebuild and they're going to come and be an enemy to you and they're not going to pay taxes. And so they told them to stop building. And then we saw them begin to rebuild again toward the end of chapter one through six. Now, after chapter six, there's a 60 year gap till we get to chapter seven. So these people that we're going to see heading back to Jerusalem tonight, the people have already been there 80 years, longer than the people had been in Babylon. So, this, so now they've been in Babylon for over 150 years. And now Ezra is going to come back and he's going to bring people with him. Now, Zerubbabel was focusing on rebuilding physically. Ezra is going to come back and the focus is going to be to rebuild the city spiritually. We won't see that as much tonight, but in the next two chapters, we're going to see after tonight, him bringing correction to what's taking place in Jerusalem. So Ezra 7 through 10 is some 60 years later. Now, the first time they went, over 50,000 people went. This time, it's less than 2,000 men. Uh, many believe when you add women and children, probably about six or 7,000 total, that will be making this 900-mile trek that we know from the text takes four months. So this is a deal. It's real easy to read through stuff in the Bible, and then they got up and they moved. It was four months walking through the desert with children. How's that working out, right? But this is somebody who's committed to going, and we're going to see, again, just a picture of what faithfulness looks like in tonight's text. So grab your outline if you've got it. I tell the message, faithfully using the gifts God has given us. Faithfully using the gifts God has given us. Point number one is better late than never. I'm talking about those who waited 80 more years, those who could have gone earlier, and then they finally do go. And you know what? That's an, an, for all of us, maybe you've never really been active in ministry. I don't care if you're 10 years old or 90 years old, it's never too late to start being faithful to use the gifts God's given you. Amen? Too often there's an excuse. Well, I'll wait till my kids are grown. I'll wait till this happens or when I retire or when I have more time. And we sit back and we're just letting the world go by and we're missing out on what God has called us to do. And we'll see in tonight's text, text better late than never. As long as we're breathing in and out, it's not too late to step out in faith, to leave our comfort zone and be obedient to the calling God has on your life. By the way, the gifts you have are God's gifts, not yours. God gave them to you. He's loaned them to you. Here you go. Here's the gift I've given you. I want you to use it. And we know from the parable of the uh, talents, right? The parable of the talents that, you know, some were faithful to use them and some buried them in the sand. And the ones that buried them in the sand, God dealt with them when he returned. Point number two, we can be so comfortable in the world that we have little or no impact on eternity. Again, by bearing the gifts God has given us 
And, I've, and this is a new, this is going to be a new Davidism right here. Comfort is the enemy of calling. Being comfortable is something that we all strive for. And, we, and you hear it all the time. Are you going to retire comfortable? Are you going to be comfortable when you retire? Are you comfortable? And it's a thing that we all strive for. It's something we all want. And the reality is we should not be comfortable here because this is not home. Amen? And when we're too comfortable, we sit back and we have very little impact on eternity. And we're going to see there's a group of people like that in tonight's text. Number three, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. You've heard that before. It's one thing to proclaim the power and faithfulness of God. It's another thing to put feet to your faith. It's one thing to say, I have faith. I believe. And then it's another thing to live like it. It's one thing to say, I know that God can provide. And it's another thing to give up all that you have and trust God to provide. And we're going to see in tonight's text that their faith is going to be put to the test. There are times when we need to do more than pray. We need to take action. Should we all pray? What's the answer? Yes. But when we pray, do we just pray? You know, it's, I love the old uh, song by Keith Green where he talks about saying, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. You know, it's all over here. No one aches, no one cries, no one even sheds one tear. And what he's saying is, you know, you pray for people. Or you say, God bless you, be at peace. And all heaven just weeps because, you know, you can, you, they, God brings them to you and you don't minister to them. Guys, it's not enough. We need to pray. We need to pray without ceasing. She'll make my father's house a house of prayer, but that prayer should produce an action in our lives. And prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes our hearts. And one of the reasons that we pray, here's why we pray. I get this question all the time. Well, if God already knows who's going to do, why do I pray? Well, let me tell you, first, because he tells you to pray. But secondly, when you pray, you're entering into intimate fellowship with Almighty God. And how many of us need more than that? Amen. More of that. We need more intimate fellowship with God. And the most intimate thing we do with the Lord is pray and spend time in His Word. Number four, we are all individually accountable for how faithful we are with the gifts God has given us. All we do for the Lord should be marked with obedience and integrity. And gifts are not given to us for our personal gain, but for the furtherance of God's kingdom. You have people that, because they, God has gifted them, they think that they're entitled they think that they should be, have people viewing them as greater than themselves. They think they should own a Learjet and fly around in it and drive a Rolls Royce. You, know, you have people that think because they have a gift. First of all, it's not your gift, it's God's. You use it for His kingdom and His glory, not for your comfort, not for your fame, not for your furtherance of you, of you and your kingdom, but for the kingdom of God. And so when God gives us a gift, we're responsible to use it faithfully and have integrity in how we use the gifts God's given us. Amen? Amen. Number five, when our gift is put to the test, we grow through faithful obedience. You know, the Jordan didn't part till they put their foot in the water. Remember that? When they're going into the land of promise, they're all standing there. And if they, I believe if they'd stood there for a thousand, they would all drop dead and never entered in. But somebody had to put, believe what God said and put their foot in the water. And when they did, the Jordan parted. As believers, I think too often we're waiting for something to fall on us instead of stepping out in faith and using the gifts God's given us. And guys, it requires obedience, trusting God to do the impossible our God can do it. And then finally, Lord, help us to be faithful with the gifts you've given us. Through their faithfulness, they were able to enter in to the land of promise. So let's begin there in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 8, looking at faithfully using the gifts God has given us. First of all, better late than never. Verse 1, these are the heads of the father's houses. This is the genealogy of those who went up with me to Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. Of, and so we're going to see in the next 14 verses a list of out of the 1,500 men roughly, and then all the women and children that are going to go back. He's only going to list a few. And who he's going to list are some of the more prominent people. We're going to see David listed and Phineas and Joab and different people. And we're going to see that their descendants, their children and children's children's children are all going to be going back. And what's amazing to me is God's promise was always... That, there would, that through the line of David, the Messiah would come, and that they would, there would be someone who's of the line of David that would rule and reign in Jerusalem. So all this time, we're going to see that David's sons don't finally return until now. Now, they're his great, 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 great grandsons, but they've been back in Jerusalem for 80 years, and there's some that still have not come home. There was not a lot in Jerusalem to attract a new expedition. I mean, first of all, Babylon was the richest place in the world. And Jerusalem, when they went back initially, was a pile of rubble. 
So if they had had a video of, you know, you know, did a Zoom on come to Jerusalem, nobody would go. But the thing is that when God calls us, it isn't always what the world finds attractive. You know, quit your job and take an 80% pay cut and go serve full-time as a missionary. That doesn't sound very uh, enticing to the world. But when you're doing it for the Lord, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Amen? And the only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. And so we need to have a burden and a passion, less concerned about our comfort, our 401k plan, how much money we have in the bank, how much equity we have in our house, and focus more on what am I doing today to impact eternity? Where are the divine appointments coming? Having a heart of, here I am, Lord, send me. The glamour of the first return had faded with great opposition and disappointment, left the most developed and luxurious of nations to return to the land of rubble from a place of comfort and familiarity to a defenseless wasteland. And that's why the second return was so limited in number. But spiritually, they were leaving a pagan and idolatrous land to go back to the place where God was being worshipped. So from the outward appearance, it looks like the world has everything and it's foolish to leave it. From a spiritual perspective, they're leaving a place of pagan idolatry where God is not worshipped, where the false gods of this world are worshipped, to go back and worship and serve the true and living God. And guys, sometimes you need to recognize that that's the same choice we have to make sometimes. You know, if we look at it from the world's perspective, often we are going to miss out on God's highest. So here's some names. I'll, I'll talk about a few of them. Uh, there's a group of names here in the next 14 verses. And so it says here in verse 2, uh, of the sons of Phineas. You guys remember Phineas? So there's, several, there's a few in the Bible. Uh, this one was, again, the son of Eleazar. These are generations behind Phineas. Gershom, the sons of Ithamar. Daniel, uh, and the son, of the sons of David, Hattush. So King David, one of his relatives, uh, somebody in his, in his line, is still living in Babylon 80 years after Jerusalem has been reopened, and they're back worshiping the true and living God. And we're going to see that even from the line of King David, this man will return. You know, it's interesting that this, these, these list of numbers of people we're going to see, while the previous pilgrimage was so great, we're going to see that these numbers, again, as I mentioned before, are much smaller because the the whole thought of what could happen in Jerusalem, the word has come back. It's not as glorious as it once was. It doesn't have the stature it once had. They're surrounded by enemies. They're open ducks. Babylon is the largest and greatest city in the world at the time, and most do not want to leave it. So David, as we know, was the king, uh, the greatest king in, in the history of Jerusalem, according to God's word. He was a giant slayer. He was a warrior, but it took his... And thankfully, better late than never, it took uh, his lineage 80 more years to go. The sons of Shechaniah, that's in verse 3, and a parish is Zechariah. Remember, you guys remember Zechariah? He was the king of Israel. He had a son named Jeroboam. We saw him in the book of Kings and in Chronicles. And these are generations of people. He had been reigning as king for a long time, and now his genealogy, people in his line are going back. He said, registered with him were 150 males. So amongst this group, in this lineage, 150 males went. Verse 4, of the sons of Pehath Moab, Eliophana, a son of Zariah, with him 200 males. Of the sons of Shechaniah, Benjizel, and with him 300 males. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan. We know who Jonathan is. Who is Jonathan's best friend? King David. With him, 50 males. The sons of Elam, Jeshiah, Athaliah, and with him, 70 males. So Jonathan was the son of King Saul. Notice that these, these people here, though they're going back to Jerusalem, many of them were actually parts of other parts of Israel, and yet they're still coming back. It says, the sons of Shephiah, Zedidiah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 males. And the sons of Joab. Now, you guys remember Joab. Joab was David's right-hand man. But Joab, in the end, uh, what did he do that caused David to be angry with him? What did he do? He killed one of his sons. What was his name? Absalom. And he was always kind of looking out for David's best when he thought David wasn't. 
but he disobeyed him. But Joab was a general, a warrior in King David's army. You're going to see another name we recognize here. It says there, uh, with him, 218 males. Uh, then it says, oh, Joab, and then it says Obadiah. And Obadiah was one of the minor prophets. He denounced Edom for gloating over the destruction of Israel. And so we're seeing that these are some people that were used mightily by God, and these are their descendants. But here's what we always, we always talk about. God has no grandchildren. And even though you could be, you know, Chuck Smith's grandson doesn't mean you know the Lord. Just because Billy Graham's your, your uncle doesn't mean you know the Lord. Just because your parents are on fire for God, just because you're a descendant of King David doesn't mean you're saved. We all have to go beyond the faith of our elders to our own faith. Amen? And so we're seeing some that are being stirred up, and they're going to take this 900-mile trek, even though there's only a few going. It's nowhere near what it was in the past. And God is going to bless them for doing so. So these are the sons of the prominent men of faith. Look at the rest of the verses here. Verse 10, the son of Shaloth, Ben Josephish. Thanks. Um, it says, and with him 160 males of the sons of Babai, Zechariah, the son of Babai, and with them 28 males of the sons of Azgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with them 110 males. And the last of the sons of Adonikam, whose names are Eliphet, Jael, Shemaiah, and with them 60 males, also the sons of Bigvi, Uthiah, and Zadud, with them 70 males. When you add all these up, it comes to 1,496 guys. So these are the men that are listed. We'll see later in the, t in the, the book that their children came with them, uh, women and children came with them, Estimated number, about 6,000 or so. And so they're going to be packing up 6,000 people, preparing for a 900-mile trek. If you remember from chapter 7, that Ezra was given all the finances he needed by the king to go back and do what was necessary to finish the rebuilding of Jerusalem, to finish the temple, to go back and, and make Jerusalem and make Israel what it once was. And we know that the king was only doing it because he wanted to cover his bases and he just, he, he worshiped every God out there, hoping one of them was the right one. And by the way, you can't do that. Amen? If you, if you add anything to Jesus Christ in the cross, you're teaching a false gospel. And so these guys are, gonna, are going to take a great trek. It's better late than never. We could say, why didn't they go sooner? Why didn't they step out in faith beforehand? But they're doing it now, and it's always better again to, to start serving the Lord right where you are. Quit regretting what you haven't done in the past and start being faithful with your future. Amen? Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, leaving that which is behind me, I press onward to the upper call in Christ Jesus. You know, my son Mark, who most of you guys know, went to heaven a couple years ago. One of the things that he struggled with in his depression, he would talk to me about all the time, is the things that he wished he had done in the past. And I was always reminding him. And that's what would drag him down. Like, well, Dad, I, you know, I got a perfect score in the military, but I didn't, go to, I didn't go to college. And I said, who cares? You know what I mean? Well, I didn't do this. Oh, my other friend bought a house. And I haven't bought a house yet. And he was always comparing himself to other people. Guys, we don't need to compare ourselves to other people. We just need to be faithful and obedient to Almighty God. Because we, we don't, we're not judged by what men do. Who cares what other men do? We need to be faithful to what God's called us to do. Point number two. We can become so comfortable in the world that, that we have little or no impact on eternity. Look at verse 15. Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi. Now why is that important? Because the Levites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, were the ones that served in the temple. Now, not all priests or Levites, I mean, not all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites. So every priest is a Levite, but not all Levites are priests. But Levites are the ones that were called to serve in the temple to assist the priest in the sacrificial system, uh, even giving out judgment, leading in worship. And so he's got this group of almost 1,500 men and their entire families there. And before they head out <clears throat> to Jerusalem, he looks and realizes we don't have any Levites. How do we not have any Levites? Now, we're going to find out there are plenty of Levites that are willing to stay in Babylon. Now, if you're a Levite and your job is to serve in the temple, how many temples they got in Babylon? Zero. Zero. 
So you're going to stay. So they're doing something else. They're not doing what they're called to do. They're called to be servants in the temple. You remember that when they gave the inheritance in the land of promise, they didn't even give the Levites any, any land. They said, no, your inheritance is you get to serve God in the temple. You get to minister to people on God's behalf. And so this was an incredible blessing, but they've now been in the land of the pagan idolatry for so long that not one Levite is going back to where they were called to be because serving in the temple is what they were called to do. But they've gotten so far away from God that they're missing out on it. Now, we're going to notice that Ezra's in charge here. Ezra himself is a priest. And Ezra is looking out and he sees in this group, thankful for those who are coming, but where are the Levites? Because when we go back, who's going to lead worship? When we go back, who's going to help us with the sacrificial system that's needed, that has to take place? They've made sacrifices every day. Who's going to keep that going in the future if we don't have Levites come with us? And apparently the Levites were too comfortable with their lives in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, going back to their ancestral duties of insisting under the authority of the priest. And again, so many become so comfortable in the world that they cease to be faithful to use the gifts God's given them. I have one friend that, as I was writing this today, I think of this guy every single time. And it's been 20 plus years since we were friends and hanging out together. And I was teaching a men's study. I had this guy start teaching and man, was he gifted. And I mean, I'm like, bro, God's got his hand on you. You are so gifted. And he was super generous, super loving, had a wonderful family. And I'm like, bro, this is the gift God's given you. You need to start using this. And I started setting him up to be in a rotation to teach. And he finally came to me. He goes, you know, Pastor Dave, I need to hold off on that for a while. And I'm like, well, what do you mean for a while? Well, you know, my kids are all in preschool. As soon as they're all in school, then I can start you know, using my gifts. What do you think I told him, right? I'm like, bro, okay, you know, really? Lord, I'll start serving you when it's more convenient for me. Is that what you're telling me? He goes, well, let's just wait. So now his kids are all in school. I go back to him like two or three years later. Hey, bro, your kids are all in school now. You can start serving. Well, you know, my wife and I have been talking it over and, you know, we really need them to be in a place where, you know, they can get home from school by themselves because, you know, I need to pick them up sometimes. What has that got to do with anything, bro? And he's just like, well, no, when they, and then literally, I'm not kidding, four or five years later, I go, bro, your kids are all middle school. You ready to start teaching now? Well, now I'm kind of in this, I feel like once they get out of the house and we're empty nesters, I, guess what? That brother's in his 60s. He's still not teaching the Bible. And I'm like, bro, look, all of us have a calling upon our life and we can always make excuses why not to serve God. And I promise you, when you stand before God on judgment day and you're accountable for the gifts you, he has given you, his gifts, you will be heartbroken to know that you missed out on all that God had for you. Amen? Amen? Now, again, should we be good parents? Of course. Should we make sure our kids are ministered to? Absolutely. But it's, there's no excuse for not using the gifts God's given you. And so many become so comfortable in the world. Comfort is the enemy of calling. And are you being faithful to use the gifts that God has given you? By the way, if you're a believer, you have, more than, you have many gifts. You have more than one. So Ezra had the money and authority he needed, but he didn't have the guys. He had all the money. We're going to see how much money in a minute. He had all this money given by the king that was more than enough. He had another 1,500 guys to travel with him, and, and, and the women and children would help repopulate Jerusalem. And, and they knew where they were going, and there was calling upon their lives. But as soon as he saw there were not enough Levites, uh, he, you know, the people that lead them in worship, assist the priests, Ezra, again, was a priest himself, and he needed help. Look at verse 16. Then I sent Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Mishalem, leaders also for Jolarib and Etham, and men of understanding. So men of understanding, these are men of wisdom. And he's going to take this group of men, and he's going to send them back to recruit some Levites. He's not going to leave without people to serve in the temple. And so he's going to send these wise men back, and they're going to go in and speak to some of the Levites and exhort them and encourage them to use the gifts they've been given and to come with them to Jerusalem. Now, there is a time, I think, I let, now I'll, this is going to sound contradictory, I almost never call anybody to do anything. And the reason I don't is if I call you, you might do it for me. 
And this has happened over the years. Well we, oh, well, we need something, and if I mention it offhand, and someone says, well, I'll do it. And they're doing it, for, they're maybe doing it for me or for the church, but they're not doing it because God called them. And then if I call you, I have to sustain you, so I don't want to call you. I don't want to call you on Sunday morning at 9.30 and make sure you prepare to teach in the fifth grade class. I don't want to do that. Because if you're called, it's a get to, not a have to. Amen? And so I don't want to do that. But at the same time, I think if we have relationships with people that are really close, I think there is a time where we need to exhort one another. As you hear me say often, Christians don't stab each other in the back, we stab each other in the front. Amen? And we just come and say, bro, you know what? You've been a Christian how long? What are you doing for the Lord? And that's, oh, well, man, that's kind of mean. What are you trying to do? Um, you know what? Serving God is a get-to, not a have-to. And I want to tell you something. The people that serve the God the most grow the most. Amen? People are sitting on the sidelines, typically aren't going to grow much. And where we grow the most is where we're being faithful to use the gifts God has given us for the kingdom of God. Look at verse 17. Then I gave them a command from Edo, the chief priest of the, of the place, Sesphia, uh, and I told them that they should say to Edo and his brethren, the Nethanim, the place of Kashphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. So he sends word back and says to Edo and uh, the Nethanim, there was a place uh, before when they didn't have enough Levites, that they enlisted some men from this tribe to serve. And so he says, go back and talk to them and tell them what we need and see if we can get some of these people to come with us. So he sends them back to Babylon from Ahava, which is just a few miles away, for the Levites to come and help with the work in Jerusalem. And Ezra didn't accept the initial failure of the Levites to join the group, but kept on appealing to them for help. You know, sometimes we tell God, no, no, no. You know, because the Lord loves you, he will continue to draw you. You might tell him, I'm not interested. Lord, I'm too busy right now. But he's going to continue by his Holy Spirit to draw you to be used for the kingdom of God. Now watch what happens here. In verse 18, and then it says, Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers and 18 men. Now I love this, that one guy heard it, and he brings his whole family with him. He gets his brothers and 18 other people that are related to him and says, Look, we'll go. No one else wants to go, we'll go. And you know what? The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one who can show himself strong on account of, one whose heart is loyal to him. Ezra planned carefully this recruitment effort, and he specifically chose these nine leaders and two men of understanding to go and appeal to those who had decided not to come. And as they shared the need, we see that somebody does respond. It says in verse 19, And Heshbiah and with him Jehiah, the sons of Merari, his brothers and sons, 20 men. So we see that Sherebiah is the one that had not originally set out to those who were making 900-mile pilgrimage. But when the call of Ezra came, he responded, and he's going to lead this delegation of Levites. Verse 20, Also Nethanim, who, uh, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim, all of them were designated by name. So the first one to respond is Sherebiah. They go out and they're encouraging others to come. And now we see that over 200 Levites are going to come. And they're going to be used mightily by the Lord. And again, better late than never. And again, they were so comfortable in the world that needed extra exhortation to realize the calling upon their lives and to use it for the kingdom of God. You know, when somebody is called, you know it, and you recognize it. I see it sometimes in how the back table is set up at church, calling, amen? You see it in just how people prepare to teach, or when they lead worship, or when they greet people, just being at the back and handing out those and making people feel welcomed and loved. I can't tell you many times new people come and say, man, I felt so loved at your church. It started with the, people who, the person who greeted me. And so when you're called to do something, it's not a drudgery, it's not a have to, it's a joy and it's a get to. You know, and, you know, the Word of God says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel, and that's how I feel. I can't imagine living my life not doing what I'm called to do, and I, wanna, and I think every believer ought to feel that way. We ought, be, we ought to be in a position where, Lord, how can I live my life if I'm not doing what you've called me 
to do. Uh, we notice so often the response to the call and others are willing to join. Sherebai responded to the call and he led others to follow the Lord. So often, sometimes you just need that first person to step out in faith. When everybody's standing there doing nothing. And then one person says, I'll go. And all of a sudden, other people get, in, get encouraged, get exhorted. Have you ever noticed when you hear somebody sharing their faith, it's a lot easier to share your faith? If somebody's singing a praise song, it's easier to join in. I walked out of my house yesterday to get the mail, and there were five, there were six people total in the street praying, holding hands in my neighborhood. I'm like, let's see what's going on over there. And so, you know, I go over and I, I'm standing behind them, and they're praying for like half an hour, and it was awesome. And then they stopped praying, and I had a Jesus Strong shirt on. They turn around, and they go, hey. And I go, hey, you guys are believers. Where are you guys? Within three minutes, I'm like, these are my best friends. You know why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in common, amen? amen? And I found out that a neighbor of mine uh, that, we, that we know has cancer and was going through chemo, and they were from her church, and they were there to minister to her. And now my wife and I know, so we've been reaching out to minister to her and her husband as well. But what I love is just those divine appointments that take place and seeing when they step down, they're praying out in the middle of the street. If they weren't praying in the middle of the street, I wouldn't have met them. If I didn't meet them, I wouldn't know what was going on across. Praise the Lord for standing up for God. Can I get amen to that? And you know what? When you go, and don't hide your prayer over your meal in the restaurant in Jesus' name. Amen? It ought to be louder than the music that's playing in there, right? I mean, when we pray, when we do anything, and it's not to draw attention to ourselves, but it's to point, put focus on the Lord. Amen? And so Zerubiah says, dude, I'll go. And all of a sudden, other people are like, you're going? I'll go too. Oh, you guys are both going? I'll go too. And because somebody stepped out in faith, God is now going to use many of them for the kingdom of God and for his glory. So we can become so comfortable in the world that we have little to no impact on eternity. Point number three, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. It's one thing to proclaim power and the faithfulness of God. It's another thing to put feet to our faith. Look at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. Now, they've got the people gathered together. They know where they're going. They know how long a distance that it is. And they know that God's called them. But notice before they leave, they fasted and prayed. They took time to stop and fast and pray. Now, how many, don't raise, well, you can raise your hand if you want. How many of you have ever taking a time, whether it's a day, two days, three days, a week, whatever it is, to fast and pray because God prompts you to do so. Okay, most of us. The, the longest I've ever fasted and prayed was seven days. Uh, I don't fast and pray as much as I should. Because Now, do you think that fasting makes God answer our prayer more? No. I think we fast. Notice what he says here that we might humble ourselves before God. See, when we fast, what we're doing is we're denying what the flesh wants to focus on what the Spirit needs. Amen? We're going to deny the desires that our flesh has so we can focus more on what God is calling us to do. There was a friend of mine who had two daughters with cystic fibrosis, and they were given life expectancy till no later than like 18. They both lived into their 30s. Uh, I think the second one is about to pass away. I saw it online. But he and I worked together, and he was a pastor at uh, the church in San Jose where I was a pastor, and we just made a determination to fast and pray every Monday. And what we would do is we would work together, and then Monday during the lunch hour, we would just go into the, one of the conference rooms, and we would just pray for his two daughters. And we fasted and prayed every Monday for, for many years. And again, I think fasting, the whole focus of fasting is to take the focus off of my flesh and my wants and my desires and put all my focus and my passion on the Lord alone. And you know, when he says to humble himself, I don't know if this really applies, but at least, especially back in those days, the people that were humble, the people that were poor, didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And he's basically saying, become like a poor person who doesn't know where your next meal is coming from. Choose not to even eat. So you humble yourself before Almighty God. And you know, we don't come to God in arrogance. We don't come and tell God what to do. One of the few things that's, that's one of the most nauseating things to me is when I'm 
praying with somebody or I hear someone praying and they're telling God, and God, you need to, and I'm telling you, God, and I claim that you need to. Whoa. We're all idiots compared to God. We don't tell God anything. Can I get an amen to that? We don't tell God what to do. We don't make demands of God. That is utter nonsense. What do we do? We come humbly before the throne of grace. We ask, and, and we can plead, and we can intercede on behalf of others. And so I love Ezra's heart here. This is the heart of a priest, right? What does a priest do? He intercedes with God on behalf of the people. He intercedes with the people on behalf of God. So he gathers the people up. They're about to make this long journey. He's like, before we go anywhere, we're going to fast and pray. We're going to wait upon the Lord. We're going to seek his face for wisdom and direction. As he says there in verse 21, the right way for them to travel. 900 miles is a long way away. Which way do you want us to go? And Lord, please show us your direction. And they're going to fast and pray and wait upon the Lord. Verse 22, for I was ashamed to request... Uh, of the king, an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. One of the reasons that they're also fasting and praying is for God's protection along the way, because the last thing he wanted to do is he's been telling the king, our God's great, our God protects his people, our God is almighty, our God goes before us, could you send an army with us to protect us? See, for him, he felt like, I'm going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to be ashamed of asking him for an escort when I just told him how great our God is. Our God is so great. Now, it's interesting. Another one of my uh, pet peeves, or what do you want to call it, is when I hear guys on the radio, and all they do is ask for money nonstop. You hear some Christian program, they'll, they'll teach for 10 minutes and spend 20 minutes. If you don't send us the money by tomorrow, we're going off the air. Here's my response, go off the air. Because where God guides, God provides, amen? amen? And if you're begging for money and pleading for money and begging for money and pleading for money, it's nonsense. And, that's what, and what happens is, well, God provides, as long as all of you call, I need, I need 75, $100 donations by 3 o'clock or we're going off the air. Please go off the air, I don't have to hear us anymore. And here what he's saying is, to them is, look, I told him how great our God is, and now I'm going to ask him for a bunch of soldiers. to keep. Because keep in mind, this 900-mile trek to the wilderness, there's robbers on the road. There's enemies who could come out and, uh, from foreign lands who could come out and attack them. They're marching through the land, and we don't know that there's any warriors among them. And they're going to go along, and if some army comes out, they're dead. So either they're going to trust God and step out in faith and know that he will protect them, or they're by... Because he's already shared, he's convicted by God, right? What is he saying? He's like, I felt ashamed that, how can I go ask him for an escort when I told him how great my God is? I can't do it. So they're fasting and praying that God would go before them, that he would lead them in the right direction so he would protect them from the robbers that may come along the way, that they would not be fearful, but they would be faithful. And, and above all else, too, is to be a testimony to that king. You know what? Our God is great. God, because God is a majority. Our God is for us. Who can be against us? I trust our God. And so this is that position he's put himself in. You know, it's such a thing as reckless faith. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between recklessness and faith. We might think that Ezra should have done what was safe and asked for a military escort. And it's not wrong to have a military escort. When Nehemiah went to Jerusalem 14 years later, he asked for a military escort. It's in Nehemiah 2.9. But it seems that Ezra had been witnessing to the king about how great his God was Sometimes I wonder if we shouldn't put ourselves in situations where we have to be stretched and trust God like that a little more often. Pastor Don McClure is my pastor in San Jose. He, he was known for this. He would take a dying church or, or plant a church, grow it, get it healthy, and then leave. And then go take another dying church, get it healthy, and then leave. Because he said, if I'm not in a place of total desperation, I, I don't, I don't want to be, I want to be in a place of total desperation all the time. So he took over Calvary San Jose. It was $11 million in debt. It was an assembly of a God church, $11 million in debt with a hundred people swinging from the chandeliers and a lady with a big wig playing worship. And the guy called up and said, can Chuck, can you send somebody up? And Don went and met with them. And, and he said, well, God's stirring me up to do something. I mean, Redlands is going great. We got a school now. The church has exploded. It's time for me to leave. And so they're praying. He goes, I think I know where you're supposed to go. Go to San Jose. And Don's like, oh no, I'm not going to San Jose. And he's driving back home, and it's like, I have a hundred reasons not to, and one reason to, and the one reason to is God said so, so he went to San Jose. And God used him over the years. He had to eat out of the food bank, no salaries, 
family lived on the campus in windowless apartments for three years. But you know what? He loves being in a place of desperation. And I think we need to be desperate a little more often. Amen? Because that's when God can use us. It's when we only want to go if it's going to be easy and it's going to be comfortable. When I would lead missions trips, I, there was people I would eliminate in the opening meeting. They're like, so we're going to Russia. So how many sites are we going to go see? I go, we'll see a few, but we're going there to minister to kids in the high schools. What's the food like? I don't know. Bread and water. What else do you need? You know, well, well how long is the flight? Can I get an upgrade to the business class to make sure? I need to be comfortable. I'm not sure I want to do this. You know what? I'm sure you're not doing this. How about that? We're not doing that. If you're already moaning and complaining, we haven't even got to Russia yet. You know what I mean? But that, there's that mentality of we think we're going to do God a favor by, you know, taking time off work and going over there. Guys, we're going over there to spread the gospel to people that need to be saved. Amen. And we need to be faithful and obedient to whatever God puts us through. So he proclaims a fast that they might humble themselves before God rather than seek help from a pagan army. And Ezra chose to put feet to his faith to cry out to God for his protection. And again, he proclaimed a fast. He understood the spiritual power of fasting as a demonstration of single-minded devotion to God and his cause. And again, how Ezra connects fasting with humbling ourselves. Humbling ourselves is taking the focus off of ourselves. Just in case you didn't know it, it's not about you. Amen? Not about you. Does the Lord love us? What's the answer? Loves you so much you'd rather die than live without you. Are you valuable to Him? Again, beyond anything. But when it comes to this life, it's not about us. It's about the kingdom of God, and it's about reaching others with the gospel. It, uh, it's not about our wants, it's not about our needs, it's not about our physical desires, it's not about placing our focus, attention, but what it is about is placing our focus, attention, and desires fully upon the Lord, seeking His will, not our wants, dying to self, being filled with Him. As with any spiritual discipline or duty, it is possible to fast without the right heart. By the way, if I fast, I don't tell anybody. You know, there's people like, oh, I'm just, you know... Oh, I, you know, yeah, I, I came out to lunch with you, and you invited me, but I just want you to know I've been fasting. And let's pour some sackcloth and ashes on my head so everybody knows I'm fasting. You know, guys, we don't want to fast with the wrong heart, amen? We don't fast to be noticed by men, we fast to be closer to God. And so it's not something that we, we talk about or we, you know, again, you might, like my buddy, we just talked about it together, and only two people knew we were fasting was me and him. And we did it on Mondays for years and never said a word to anybody else. Why? Because it wasn't about us. It was about focusing on the Lord. And so he was ashamed because he didn't want to make that request. So he fasts and he prays, and he's going to put his faith in God and proclaiming the greatness of our God and then desperately seeking the world for help will stumble people. Look what happens in verse 23. It says, so when we fasted, verse 22, for I was ashamed of request to help because he had spoken of the king, saying, The hand of God is upon all those who are good to seek him, as I shared. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for us, and he answered our prayer. So again, he fasted. He waited upon the Lord. He, he did not want to harm the name of God by asking for help from the world. And then the Lord answered his prayer. By the way, does the Lord answer all of our prayers? What's the answer? He does. Yes, no, and wait. Amen? Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and the one we hate the most is wait. Well, not yet. I might even make you wait and then tell you no later. Right? But notice that they, instead of panicking and seeking answers from the world, they kept fasting and they kept praying till they heard from the Lord and the Lord answered their prayer. There are times when we need to do more than pray, we need to take action. But there are also times when we simply need to pray. And again, I, I, I'm glad um, you know, for the opportunity to pray for you guys every week. I love, Tuesday's been my prayer walk day, and I, it's just because I'm full-time, I'm able to do this, and I love it. And there's a, there's a trail near my house, and last week I had like 60 prayer requests because I've been gone for a while. And I just walk for as long as it takes, and I just go through them and pray for them one at a time. And some of you guys get prayed for a lot because you put a lot of prayer requests in. And some of you don't get prayed for at all because you don't put any prayer requests in. 
And I'll pray for you if you come to mind, but if you want to be prayed for. But you know what? When we take that time and we set aside time to wait upon the Lord and to seek the Lord, it's just something special about that. You know, God's hand, you know, is it moved when people fast? Maybe to some degree. If there's some things that are pretty serious in your life, then you ought to be praying seriously about them. Do you pray seriously? Or do you just kind of do drive-by prayers? Dear Lord, thank you for this food in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah, I just got to, someone wants me to pray for him. I pray for so-and-so, and yeah, I hope you go. And you keep going. You're watching TV, you mute it for 12 seconds, you may pray your prayer and turn it back on. When's the last time you got on your knees, got in your prayer closet, got somewhere alone, and just sought the face of the Lord and poured out your heart to him? You know, there's nothing he loves more than having intimate fellowship with you, and prayer is intimate fellowship with God. And you know what? If you're not praying, you're missing out. You really are. Do you have a need for God's hand to be moving in your life? We need to pray. I'd like to challenge some of us to consider fasting, even just for one meal a week. Seek God's hand. Instead of going to the drive-thru, go park in a parking lot and spend an hour with the Lord in prayer. I, I, guys, I don't think we'll ever regret it. Amen? Point number four. We are all individually accountable for how faithful we are to use the gifts God has given us. So they're about to leave. He gathers them up. He doesn't want to leave until he gets direction and wisdom from God. He doesn't want to harm the name of the Lord by asking for help. So he seeks the Lord, he fasts, he prays, he hears from the Lord, and now he knows it's ready and it's time to go. Then it says there in verse 24, And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priest, Sherebiah, Hashbiah, 10 of the brethren with them, and weighed out to them silver and gold, the articles of offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all of Israel who were present had offered. So he's going to weigh out. So we're going to see that the value of what they've been given by the king in today's dollars is in the millions of dollars. I mean, he's given them silver and gold in the millions of dollars. And so what does he do? He takes 12 of the priests, those are in positions to intercede with God on behalf of the people and intercede with the people on behalf of God. And he's going to give one twelfth to each of these 12 priests. And they're each going to be accountable for what they've been given. It's going to be a 900-mile trek. It's going to take four months. And they are going to be called to make sure that that gift is safe, that it's taken care of. As they're along the way, there could be robbers. As they're along the way, they could spill some of it and lose it. There could be along the way where they decide to embezzle some of it. And I love this picture here that God has given them a gift to care for. They're not to bury it, but they're to protect it and make sure it gets to where it belongs so it can be used for the kingdom of God. And that's what God does with our gifts. He doesn't want us to bury it. He doesn't want to just try to keep it, you know, keep it from being robbed and taken away from us, but bring it to the place where it can be used for the kingdom of God and for his glory. And so I love the accountability that takes place here as he gives these 12 uh, priests and Levites receive the silver and gold. And again, it took some measure of faith because holding this wealth made them targets of violence and robbers and bandits. And they received, again, responsibility and stewardship. And the same is true for us. When you step out in faith to be used by the Lord, know that the enemy notices. He would, if he can't destroy you, he'll distract you. And if, he, if you start to be used for the kingdom of God, get ready. Because the enemy's not going to like it. Again, I've said this so many times, bears repeating though. There's no one in the Bible used mightily that didn't suffer greatly. There's not one example. Yet we want to be used mightily, but no suffering. Lord, I just want to be on the cruise ship to heaven. Matter of fact, I'd really like a king-size suite if I could, and I just want to be in the smooth waters my entire life, and I will help out in the children's ministry once every six months. I'm in. And there's that mentality that we don't want it to cost us anything. But the reality is that part of what happens when you're in ministry, even, no matter what that ministry is, it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that God comforts us in our suffering that we may then comfort others with the comfort that we have received. So how do we receive that comfort? We have to go through suffering. But we go through that suffering and that suffering is not wasted and God will use it for his glory if we will but let him. Amen? 
And too many people just want to step aside and as long as I got the get out of hell free card, you know, as long as I make it to heaven, I'm okay. Guys, the Lord of God tells us that God has gifts for us and I don't strive for the gifts, but the Lord desires that I want to have those gifts because he's the one that told us that he has them for us. Amen? So he weighs out to them the offering of the house of God, the king and his counselors and princes, that I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, several articles weighing 100 talents, and a hundred talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also, and the silver and the gold are freewill offering to the Lord God of our fathers. So these articles are holy, and it's important we do things correctly and uprightly when gifts are given to us by the Lord. We need to take it very seriously. Now, I want you to notice, too, that this is about gifts, but it's also about finances. And they need to be good stewards of the finances. And I just want you to know that's something we take very seriously here at Calvary Chapel, Canal Valley. By the way, if you ever want to look at the books, just let us know. You can look at it anytime you want. We're, we want to be above reproach. Uh, as the pastor, this is just my conviction. I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't want to know. Because I don't even want in the back of my mind... To, you know, it talks about, oh, you, the guy that gives a lot, you put him up on the higher. I don't even want that to be in the back of my mind. I know it's never my intention. I look at everybody the same. And, and as you give, that's why, you know, it, it, I don't count the offerings because I don't want to see who gave what. And I only write a check if I have to. I try to be as far away from it as I can be. Now, I need to know, we need to know what's there so we know how we can use it for the kingdom of God and furtherance of the gospel and to minister to people in our church that are hurting and all those things that take place. But I don't want to get. I don't want to get to that point where I confuse people with dollar amounts, even in the back of my mind, even my subconscious. But we need to be faithful stewards of what we're given. Amen? And if you have a church where they won't show you their books, find another church. Amen? Too often, some things are taking place that shouldn't be. And so they take it seriously. And, and we need to take it seriously. Verse 29, watch and keep them. You know, I said to them, you are holy, and watch and keep them, verse 29, until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers of the house of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. She's telling them, you've been given this gift that belongs to the Lord, and it's going to be in your care until you give it to the one it belongs to, until you give it to be used for the kingdom of God and for his glory. You and I have been given gifts by God, we're accountable for what we do with them until we come before the Lord and give them back to Him. Amen? So we have these gifts. So these guys, no doubt, can you imagine? Have you ever had, I remember sometimes I'd go on a mission trip. I might, when I, especially when I took kids, I would have everyone's passport. I'd have like 20 passports. And I, would, I literally got a thing, I hung around my neck and I put it under my clothes and it's set right in here. And, and if, if we lost the passports and I've got... 19 teenagers in Russia, and we can't go home. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a big problem. Pastor Don's going to skin me alive when I get back. So, but what's funny is, because it was in my chest, I, I, people, my, when a couple of guys were helping me go, you're doing this like once every hour. You go, just making, that sure, making sure I don't lose that. Oh, yep, still there. Okay, still there. Yeah, it's still there. Okay. Because if it drops and it falls, we're in trouble. And you know, can you imagine these guys are coming back with millions of dollars of God's resources? I can just imagine these guys every five seconds. It's still there. Okay. You know, it's just still there. Okay. It, yeah, it's still there. You know what I mean? Just, but I tell you what, we need to have that kind of vigilance when it comes to the gifts God's given us. Amen. That we take it serious, that we don't just let it go, or we just don't use it, or we let it sit to the side. We should be daily saying, Lord, I want to be faithful to use the gifts you've given me. So many things could happen on the way to Jerusalem. The money could be lost, it could be stolen, it could be embezzled. And each of these priests was to be faithful and guard what the Lord had placed in their hands. And God's resources, not theirs. Just because you have a gift doesn't mean it's yours, it's God's. The resources we have in this fellowship don't belong to any of the pastors, any of the people. They all belong to the Lord. It's all His. Amen? And we need to recognize the house we live in, the car that we drive, clothes on our back, all belong to the Lord. Amen? I love when our home is used for ministry. I love it. Why? Because it's not my house. It's God's house. And there's so many people like that in this fellowship. You know, if people need help, we want to help them. 
We too are accountable for how we handle and guard the gifts and resources God has placed in our care, and gifts not given for our personal gain, but for the furtherance of the gospel. So if you're gifted, uh, if you're a gifted musician, it's because that's easy to pick on. If you're a gifted musician, because it's so apparent, it's not gifted so you'll be famous, it's gifted so God will be glorified. Amen? Whatever your gifting is, it's not for your the furtherance of, of your name, not to bring fame to yourself, but to bring glory to Almighty God. Amen? So we're all individually accountable for how faithful we are with the gifts that God has given us. And so it does say there, so the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So these gifts are theirs until they get to where, until they get to the land of promise. And the gifts God's given us are ours. They're his gifts for us to use until we get to the land of promise, and for us, that's heaven. Amen? Point number five, when our faith is put to the test, we grow through faithful obedience. Verse 31, it says there, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambush along the road. Now, see, I love this. The first thing that they did is they prayed and sought the Lord. When the Lord told them to go, they went. And when they went, because they were faithful to what God had called them to do, he protected them. Now, as believers, when we obey God, sometimes we still get persecuted by the world. Can I get amen to that? But when we obey the Lord, we're not going to get punished by the Lord. Now, I would much rather be persecuted by the world than punished by the Lord. Amen? So if I step out in faithful obedience to do what God's told me to do, and the world attacks me, so be it. But if I disobey God, then the correction is not going to come necessarily from the world. It's going to come from the Lord. And I would much rather be, rather be faithful to God and hated by the world than comfortable with the world and disciplined by God. Amen? And so what do they do? They prayed. They had a peace they were to go. And notice that they noticed along the way, God delivered us from that ambush. God protected us from these enemies along the road. And they, they could step out in fearlessness because they know if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, that four months, 900 miles through the desert, women and children with them. Again, imagine 900-mile hike with small children. I can't, you can't even get them through the mall. I don't know what are you going to get them 900 miles. Again, transporting great riches, no army, no guards to defend them, roads filled with robbers, easy just to, again, we can just read through these verses and act like it's no big deal. Not only did they go serve God, but it cost them something. And I want you to know that when you obey God and are faithful to the calling he has upon your life, it's usually going to cost you something. Well, I want to serve the Lord, but what time do I have to be there? It's my only morning to sleep in. Yeah, I get that kind of stuff. Well, what time? What time? What time? Really? Yeah, I don't know. I was called to that, but that's my, that's my Sunday morning sleep, and I can't do that. Guys, when we serve the Lord, did it cost him anything to, to save us? It cost him everything, amen? And yet, too often, we moved eight miles from Calabasas to here, eight or nine miles, whatever it is. And people call me, oh, I don't think I can drive. You have an air-conditioned car. It's going to take you eight minutes. Your car won't even be warm by the time you get here. You know what it is? It's where your, pet, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen? Amen? When it's a passion of yours, it doesn't matter if it costs me something. I love, I love that we have so many young people that are starting to use all their gifts, whether it be worship or teaching or whatever. And uh, Adam taught for the first time last night at the young adults group. He called me. We talked on the phone for over an hour, and he was going over the text with me. And I'm like, this guy's taking it serious. I like that. And I love when people are willing to study. And he's like, yeah, I didn't hardly sleep last night. I go, that a baby. That's what I'm talking about, right? And even at outlines, he goes, I've got outlines. I was upstairs. I go, that's what I'm talking about. Somebody's been, someone's been paying attention. But the point I'm making is when we serve the Lord, it's willing to give up some sleep if I need to. It's willing to give up a promotion at work if it's going to keep me from what God has for me. It's a willingness to move to a faraway country if that's what God calls me to do. And too often we want to serve the Lord. We want it to cost us nothing. David said when the Lord, they wanted to give him a plot of land to make sacrifices, he said, I cannot give to God that which costs me nothing. 
It's got to cost me something. Cost him everything. And too often, we make excuses on why we can't. Well, you know, I just don't have enough time. As you watch Netflix for four hours a day. (laughs) Guys, this is both a trial and a calling. 900 miles. Taking your kids with you. Whole family could be slaughtered by robbers. You seek the Lord. God answers your prayer. You step out in faith. You take the trip. You see God protecting you from people who want to rob you, marauders along the way, people that are going to ambush you. You see God's hand upon it, and you get to Jerusalem, and you're faithful, and you deliver what God had given you to deliver so it could be used for the kingdom of God and for His glory. I mean, I, when I stand before Almighty God one day, the only thing I want all of us to hear is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And how does that happen? We walk in faithful obedience to what God has called us to do. Look at verse 32. It says, so we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. So they, they arrived. God told them they would arrive and they arrived. Every one of us, let me tell you a destination we all have in our future, standing before Almighty God. Amen? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, we will not be at the great white throne judgment. That's only for unbelievers. Unless you don't know the Lord and you're here tonight, you will be on that judgment. And that's between heaven and hell. And we know the people of the great white throne judgment are all going to separation from God and hell because they rejected the Lord. But we will be at the Bema Seat judgment, and we will be accountable for what we've done with the gifts God's given us. Have we been faithful? Are we using them for His kingdom and His glory? Last point, Lord, help us to be faithful with the gifts you've given us. Look at verse 33. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, with them with the Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benel, with the number and the weight of everything, and all the weight was written down at that time. Now, notice that there was accountability for what they did with the gifts God gave them. They were given a certain weight, and all 12 of these guys were coming in one at a time, and they're bringing it all, and it's all being weighed out, and they're accountable for how faithful they were with what was given to them. God's given us, and it's going to be found and be weighed out one day on how faithful were we with the gift God has given us. And again, I love that it's weighed out. It's a picture of accountability, and those of us who are in ministry need to be accountable both to, to God and to man, the people that we serve. So they counted it all, and again, when they arrived in Jerusalem, and notice, too, that these people are people of integrity. And as believers, we should be people of integrity and character. Reputation is who you are when no one's watching. Character is who you are when everyone's watching. Reputation is who you are when everyone's watching. Character, integrity is who you are when no one's watching. And we should be people that are trustworthy when nobody's watching because we know that God's always watching. Amen? Again, the parable of the talents, we're all accountable for all the gifts God's placed in our hands. And Lord, help us to be faithful with all the gifts that God has given us. It says in verse 35, the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering, all this burnt offering to the Lord. As soon as they got to Jerusalem, the first thing they did was sacrifice to the Lord. The bulls are are a sin offering. They consume the entire thing. And it was a way of them coming and seeking forgiveness from Almighty God. How many sacrifices were they making in Babylon? Zero. Zero. So now they, the first thing they do when they get to Jerusalem is we can make sacrifices to God. We can openly worship the Lord. This is where we belong. It's better to be in a broken down city of rubble worshiping God than in a, a palatial place that's filled with riches, not walking with God. Last verse. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people of the house of God. You can only imagine the scene after 900 miles when they get there and they see Jerusalem for the first time. Because none of these people have been to Jerusalem before. How do we know that? Because it's been 80 years since the first group went back, and it was 70 years. So you have to be 150 years old to have been to Jerusalem before. So they hadn't been. So part, they were so excited that they were finally in the place of promise. 
And you see that, that excitement on their face, but also what a blessing it is to those who are serving that the resources have come so now they can do more for the kingdom of God. So in closing, faithfully using the gifts God has given us, it's better late than never. It's never too late to start serving God if you haven't yet, or to serve Him again if you've kind of checked out. Number two, we can become so comfortable in the world, we have little to no impact on eternity. I want to encourage you, if you get offered a, a promotion at work, pray about it. Sometimes that comfort or that, that extra thing will take away more time. And I've, I've seen so many people, I got a promotion, so I can't come to men's study anymore. And I won't really be there on Sundays because I will have to work overtime. And I can't do that. Guys, sometimes uh, what seems to be good is the enemy of what is best. Number three, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. It's one thing to say I have faith. It's another thing to live like it. Number four, we're all individually accountable for how faithful we are with the gifts God has given us. There's a day coming when we'll all be held to account for that gift God gave us, just like these men who faithfully brought it and handed it back and they counted it and it was all there. God wants us to be faithful as well. When our faith is put to the test, we grow through faithful obedience. Again, it's when we go through those difficult times that we grow the most. And finally, Lord, help us to be faithful with the gifts that God's given us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are a great and an awesome God. We thank you for the gifts you've given us. We thank you for the privilege of being adopted into your family. Lord, I'm mindful of the Great Commission. As Jesus was ascending back into heaven, he said, what do we do now? One of the last words that Jesus said is, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know we're all called to share our faith. That's one gift we all have. Lord, help us to be faithful to that. Help us to know what we believe and why we believe it. Help us not to keep it to ourselves. And Lord, I pray for people here who have never really stepped out of their comfort zone. I pray that tonight you would stir them up by your Holy Spirit. Just to begin by doing something simple. Lord, we know there's more that can take place here. There, maybe start a Bible study where you work. Maybe start ministering to your neighborhood or being involved in a ministry here at Calvary Chapel. So Lord, we lay all these things at your feet. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. Amen. Is he worthy?